0: This is America on the Road, winner of the International Automotive Media Conference Gold Medal Award for Radio, and now in its 27th year on the air. Thanks for being with us as we bring you the latest automotive information from around the world. Ferrari is about to introduce a vehicle that would have Enzo Ferrari rolling over in his grave, and we'll tell you all about that. Meanwhile, one state has introduced new regulations that would ban sales of gasoline-powered cars in 2035 and beyond. We'll give you the details on that, too, and what it could mean to you. might mean a lot. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and DrivingToday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. Californians save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at MercuryInsurance.com. Hi, I'm Jack D. Red. With me is co-host Chris Teague. Chris lives at one end of the country, I live at the other. Each week we get together to talk about cars, the latest news of the auto industry. Uh, Chris, uh, I think there's a little disappointment in the uh, Teague residents today. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, we were slated to uh, get on a plane tomorrow and take the kids to Disney World in Florida for uh, their spring break, I guess, here in Maine. And uh, one of our family members came down with COVID, so we are now grounded for at least a week, if not a little longer, but... Uh, At least we have nice weather while we're here, so we can go out in the backyard and we have a nice river view. So it won't be all bad, but it's not going to be Disney fun for sure.
0: No, it's not going to be Disney World, that's for certain. And, uh, you know, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I hope everybody uh, gets well quickly from this latest strain of of COVID and uh, we put this behind us finally. Uh, It would be great for everybody if that were to happen. We do have a terrific guest uh, on the show. His name is Dave Coleman. He is the Mazda Vehicle Dynamics Manager. And if you want to know what a, why a Mazda feels like a Mazda, he's the one to talk to. I had a chance to uh, sit down with him on the Mazda CX-50 drive, and our talk extended well past that vehicle. Really interesting guy talking about vehicle dynamics. If you care about that or just how your car feels, uh, he's a great one to... To hear from. In the road test segment, Chris, what is your vehicle?
1: I drove the 2022 GMC Sierra 1500 Limited. So this is an interesting truck to talk about uh, as they have a a new new model coming out right after that one.
0: Yeah. Well, it's kind of a new old model and followed by a new new model. So (laughs) we'll discuss that a little bit more, make that a little clearer. I had the chance to drive the newest of the Jeep Grand Cherokees. They're coming thick and fast, aren't they, the new Jeep Grand Cherokees? This is the 4xe version, the plug-in hybrid version of that midsize SUV. Jeep says it's the most capable of all the Grand Cherokees, and I'll give you my opinion about that later in the show. But before we do that, we'll bring you some of the most important auto-related news, including this Ferrari news. So stay with us. Welcome back to America on the Road. This is Jackie Red with you. I'm Chris Teague, and we're so happy you're with us on America on the Road. It is news time, and here's a little bit of news that got me reminiscing a little bit. Ferrari is about to launch a sport utility vehicle, the Puro Sangue. It means thoroughbred. Uh, I say uh, marketing lesson number one, don't put out a a name that people can't pronounce. (laughs) Yes, as your brand name for a particular thing, but uh, that's not the worst of it. Uh, I was lucky enough to meet Enzo Ferrari back in the day, and uh, he was all about sports cars and performance cars. In fact, performance cars for the street weren't even the center of his attention. He was really a race car guy. So to have an SUV wear the Ferrari name, uh, what do you think about that, Chris?
1: I think that they kind of have to do it, right? Look at So Lamborghini has an SUV now. Porsche always has had an SUV. I mean, for a long time now, Uh, even Lotus is coming out with an SUV. So uh, Aston Martin, I can just keep going on and on. Yeah, Bentley has them. I mean, yeah. Yeah, if they don't do it, they're going to be the odd man out or odd people out.
0: I think they're seeing profits there. Uh, I think it dilutes the brand. I don't think people think of Porsche the same way they used to. And I'm sure that young people don't think of Porsche the same way we used to when we were young. Uh, because what they're seeing is people driving around in all these uh, four-door SUVs that uh, are carting them to and from school, as opposed to the sports cars that we salivated over when we were kids. But uh, I guess the the current uh, trumps the, the future in terms of profits. Uh, makes some sense, I guess.
1: Yeah, and I think you, know, you and I might be different than the average enthusiast or different than the average bear, but... I definitely don't think SUV when I think Ferrari, but I mean, in the same breath, I don't think SUV when I think Lamborghini or Aston Martin either, but uh, they appear to be selling. So people do think those things uh, that are not us, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's people with money who, who buy those things, and that's definitely not us. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Unless you've got a stash that I'm unaware of, Chris. But uh, Oh, it's hidden. Yes, very yes, well hidden. Yeah. We are just humble car reporters, but uh, it's a fun job. We get to live like millionaires every couple of days uh, for two days at a time and then they go back to our everyday lives so that's that's an interesting interesting take on how we live our lives well here is a a thing that uh, comes from my home state uh Just uh, another amazing edict from the California Air Resources Board. It's going to require that 35% of new new passenger vehicles sold in the state of California by 2026, do the math, that's not too far from now, be powered by batteries or by hydrogen, be zero emission vehicles. Uh, I think that's wildly optimistic, but um, that is the uh, proposed regulation. Then beyond that, the state expects that 100% or will require, not expects, but will require that 100% of all new car sales not uh, put out fossil fuel emissions, essentially banning gasoline car sales after 2035. I think these are giant leaps of faith. What's your take on that, Chris?
1: I think they're giant leaps of faith. They also make big assumptions on what's going to happen outside of government. So, uh, you know, supply chain issues aside, are there going to be enough electric vehicles to go around when people need them? Are there going to be enough affordable electric vehicles to go around when people want them? What's the infrastructure going to be like? I know California is a lot better than we are here, but they can't, can't possibly have enough infrastructure to support, uh, an entire wave of new electric vehicles hitting the streets. So, uh, I don't say short-sighted because I don't know what kind of planning went into it, but I do think it's bigger than just uh, making a decree.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, 2026 is not very far away. I mean, cars that are going on sale in 2026 are largely at least planned, and many of them are currently in production, and (laughs) there just aren't you know, 35% of the the market. Uh, Right now, it's about 12% of new vehicles sold in California are zero-emission vehicles, essentially electric vehicles, and that's a big number um it's partially spurred by the high gas prices of course uh but to more than double that almost triple that in the course of four years i think is um, just fantasy land really
1: yeah i mean i think the the sentiment or the the idea behind it is great and maybe the conversation that it sparks is what we need to have happen but uh you know it creates a lot of controversy and confusion that probably doesn't need to be in the mix
0: yes Well, in a total ban of uh, new car gasoline car sales uh, by 2035, again, that's not very far off when you're an auto company planning your production. And uh, it's just, uh, I think, hard to imagine. This is also something that might have effect in states other than California, uh, there are several other states that typically follow California's leads when it comes to emissions, among them New York, Massachusetts, North Carolina. I- is Maine in that group? I think it probably is, isn't it, yeah, Chris? Yes, it is. Yeah. So uh, a lot of states involved that m- might follow this path, and I, you know, I, I think it's a path that's going to end up being changed, right? It's going to have a dead end and, and things are are liable to uh, change as they have changed before, we've been seeing zero emission edicts in California for the better part of 30 years now. None of them has stuck. and uh, I have a feeling this one won't either.
1: It'll be interesting to see. I can't imagine here I could I can that, so first of all, nobody's making those those de- declarations here, but uh, I can imagine and I've heard several uh, people say that, that they would be very upset if it did. Uh, and then also, you know, we've got a much longer road to, to travel before we can even get to, I don't know, 10% uh, increase in electric vehicle sales here. So uh, the rest of the country is a little bit further behind, but I think even California has a lot of work to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely true. Well, here's a, maybe a, a voice of reason in, in all this chaos. The BMW chief executive officer, Oliver Zipsy, he says the company should be careful not to become too dependent on electric vehicles because it makes them very dependent on just a few countries that provide the raw materials used in electric vehicles. One of these countries, of course, is China. And I don't know that uh, any free country wants uh, necessarily to put all of its uh, eggs in the basket of China in terms of getting raw materials for uh, major industries. So, I think uh, again there's there's got to be major questions about this zero emission strategy and where it's coming from and and who's pushing for it and what's really behind this because to uh eliminate vast portions of the American car industry and the the western car industry and that's the only way to get to zero emissions uh by these kind of edicts is uh maybe shooting ourselves in the foot or uh, maybe higher up uh, what do you think Chris
1: I think I agree to an extent, you know, I think it'll also be interesting to see how things progress as the automakers uh, sort of in-house their supply chain and start bringing some of these new battery technologies in-house and what they're able to do uh, with materials sourcing. Uh, But I do agree. I mean, not even from just a, like a geopolitical standpoint, it's a huge risk financially and from a business standpoint to have uh, one region or one country or one company that controls such a large portion of your raw materials. So Uh, I think they're probably going to work pretty hard to to change that as much as they can if, you know, if they're willing or willing to put the effort in, I guess.
0: I think the difficulty with that is environmental regulations prevent, uh, say, the mining and and refining of rare earths here in the United States. Uh, There's a lot of uh, barriers we have put up against these things, and maybe very rightly so, maybe for ecological reasons. Uh, But uh, that limits our ability to... uh, create these or refine these materials used in batteries, uh, leaving us very dependent on countries that don't care as much about the environment, apparently.
1: Yeah, it's a shame that (laughs) uh, such a, I guess, a virtuous part of our auto industry uh, relies on uh, the pollution of other areas. But that's a whole other documentary series on its own.
0: Yeah, isn't it really? Uh, that's the untold story of EVs, you know, the <laughs> the pollution and uh, environmental degradation that they cause as they're being built. Uh, so we'll see what's going on with that. Well, we have talked uh, about Rivian before. Rivian makes a, a um, electric pickup truck and they're struggling uh, to get chips because uh, apparently suppliers don't want to supply them with chips because they'd rather supply established companies. What do you think that means overall, Chris?
1: I think it's surprising given the first of all the number of uh, real orders that Rivian has, the number the number of dollars that it has gotten from uh, Ford, Amazon, you know, everybody else. So a uh, little surprising to hear that. I do know that Rivian has far more orders for trucks and Amazon vans than they can currently uh, produce in a year. So. Uh, They're in a good, I guess, business standpoint, but if they can't get the parts they need, then they're going to be in trouble.
0: Yeah, and I think the uh, stock market is seeing that they're in trouble and their stock has fallen 60% this year, uh, which is indicative of uh, problems in in Rivian land. Pretty cool truck, too, so we'll wish them luck, but we'll have to see what happens. And when we come back, we will be uh, road testing some vehicles that uh, will be out there on the road, have been out there on the road. And we've tested them. So stay with us for that. With Chris Teague, this is Jack Red with you. And we thank you so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back to America on the Road with Chris Teague, Jack Red with you. It is road test time. And we have very interesting vehicles, I think. Uh, not the usual crop of vehicles this time around. Uh, a brand new plug-in hybrid that I was driving. And Chris, you're driving kind of a new old vehicle or an old new vehicle. Uh, why don't you tell us about that and explain that a little? <laughs>
1: it's an interesting uh, i mean, interesting situation. So uh, GMC has a new full-size pickup truck, the Sierra 1500, coming out this year for 2022. It's supposed to be, uh, it's got new tech, it's got new styling. So uh, pretty decent refresh there. But in the meantime, they've released what they call the quote-unquote limited, uh, the Sierra limited. Uh, and it's basically the same thing as the 2021 GMC Sierra. So it's the same trims, same options, colors, powertrains, all that stuff, uh, basically the same truck. And that's what I was able to test for the weekend. Uh, while it's not brand new, it's still a pretty strong contender in, in the market. So Jack, I want to get your feeling here. Uh, you know, the new Sierra is coming out. What do you think about the sort of stop gap of this 1500 limited and how it lo- looks compared to other brand new trucks this year so far?
0: Well, it's interesting. I, I- I can see why GMC wants to do it. They want to keep selling trucks and they want their dealer to have a dealers to have a truck to sell, which makes a lot of sense and I would say from a purely functional point of view, an old pickup truck, probably new old, fairly recent but not exactly 100% new, probably is equally functional to a brand new one. I wonder where these are going to go in terms of residual value or resale value down the road. Uh, That's a a question mark out there. There's a a lot of question marks surrounding this, I think. Yeah, I
1: don't, that'll be hard to say. I will say, and this is interesting, talking about supply chain issues in the previous segment, uh, this truck had a few blank buttons on the inside. So uh, I know that there are some options that might've been there. So automatic start, stop, some other things that might uh, have gone away because they just didn't have a microchip there to power it. But uh, interesting uh, Easter eggs aside, this truck, uh, the the Sierra Limited line starts around thirty-two thousand dollars, so uh, pretty affordable on the bottom end. But my tester was the SLT trim, which is uh, it's either the next to highest or the next to next to highest trim, uh, and with options, it landed in the mid sixty thousand. So. Uh, pricing is still every bit as, uh, I'll say, stout as you would get for uh, a brand, brand new pickup truck that just gotten uh, redesigned. Uh, this truck's got a 6.2-liter V8. This is one of several powertrains that GMC offers. Uh, there's a 5.2, 3 liter V8, excuse me. Uh, there's a diesel, and there's also a 2.7-liter four-cylinder engine that you can get for this truck. Uh, the V8 makes 420 horsepower, 460 pound-feet of torque, 10-speed automatic transmission. This truck had four-wheel drive. Uh, rear-wheel drive is standard. And I got to say, this is a big, big V8. So fuel economy is not great, but man, what a great sound in the full-size pickup truck! You know, <laughs> it reminds me of being a kid and my my parents, my uncle, pickup trucks, the old Fords and Chevys that uh, they really sound like a truck. You know, so and this is the four-door model. So it's got a full-size back seat. Uh, we had plenty of room inside for the kids. Uh, Jack, I'm going to talk about my six feet tall uh, height right now. I can't and, wait. Even with my seat adjusted a little bit further back than I would normally like it, my nine-year-old daughter behind me still had plenty of room to stretch out, um, didn't end up banging her feet on the seat or anything like that. So uh, there's plenty of room on the inside of these trucks, uh, so they are perfectly livable. Uh, This vehicle has leather interior, uh, heated and cooled seats, heated and ventilated seats, an 8-inch touchscreen with Apple CarPlay, wireless Apple CarPlay, and wireless Android Auto Uh, And just all around a great tech package. One thing I will say is that GMC and Chevy do this, Cadillac does it. Uh, They hold back safety options and a lot of tech behind options packages, and that's the case here. So to get blind spot monitoring, head-up display, and all those things, you have to pay extra. Uh, But the result is a very solid truck with well-rounded options package. So I think it's very, uh, like I said, it's smooth, it's comfortable, and it's capable. So you you have your kind of all-around package here. Uh, It's a great truck, but I think there are better choices out there, Jack.
0: Yeah, there are probably better choices out there, and uh, the fact that uh, this is going to be superseded by an all-new version almost momentarily makes you wonder whether you should pull the trigger on this vehicle or not.
1: Yeah, and it's not like a sports car where there's like a limited run model that becomes more valuable over time. This is like an everyday pickup truck, so (laughs) it'll be interesting to see.
0: Right. The interesting thing, too, is the, the Ram 1500 Classic is now in its fourth model year. Uh, it was the previous generation of the ram 1500 and it was meant as a stopgap but it uh, served more than served that purpose and is still on sale uh, and they can yeah, I still to see run. a ton of them yeah and uh, I think in a lot of ways it's a good buy and it kind of uh, endorses the the opinion I have that a, a good pickup truck is a good pickup truck it doesn't really need uh, new as tomorrow tech necessarily
1: yeah I totally agree the capabilities there that's a, a very strong selling point.
0: Right. So uh, we shall see what happens with this. But uh, interesting, just another problem caused by supply chain COVID and and all the things we've experienced over the last three years. It's just uh, another casualty. Uh, It's like there's there's more and more and more. Well, I was driving a vehicle that's quite different. Uh, This is the latest of the uh, rollout of the Jeep Grand Cherokee line, the new Jeep Grand Cherokees. First, we saw the Grand Cherokee L, the three-row version. Then they came out with a basically a heads-up replacement of the old Jeep Grand Cherokee, a two-row, five-passenger vehicle. And the vehicle I got the chance to drive outside Austin, Texas, was the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe. It uses the same plug-in hybrid powertrain as the Jeep Wrangler 4xe. The fact that it's a plug-in hybrid might uh, cause some people to, to uh, wonder, well, Will this work off-road? What, is there a battery? Can I Ford Rivers, you know, do the things that I would do in, in the typical Grand Cherokee? And the, the uh, answer is, well, yes, you can. Uh, this is an incredibly capable vehicle. And it's labeled by Jeep as the most technologically advanced and 4x4 capable Grand, uh, Grand Cherokee yet. So they think it's the best Grand Cherokee. And I really can't disagree with them. It's also certainly priced like the best Grand Cherokee. Even the base model is close to $60,000. And if you get a uh, Summit version, it's uh, close to $70,000. And you can add more onto that to make it closer to $75,000. So driving this thing... the first thing you notice when you get in is uh, how rich it seems inside. This is a, a beautiful vehicle, especially in the higher trims. I was driving a very high trim. They have a tendency to put a, us uh, into vehicles like that. So there was rich leather, soft-touch materials. I love the term soft-touch materials. Uh, you might call it plastic, so, you know, soft-touch plastic, but uh, soft-touch materials beyond the leather it really the craftsmanship really kind of recalls european luxury cars which is cool and there are digital screens everywhere i mean it's kind of crazy there are at least three up front two optional entertainment screens in the rear uh what's your take on all this infotainment that's uh gracing the grand cherokee four by (laughs) eight chris
1: i actually made a post on twitter about this the other day i really i the, the digital gauge clusters are really starting to grow on me i think at first, I was a little sad that you lost the physical gauges, but then you have all these configurable screens with different information, and Jeep has that too. So I think that's that's perfect for them. Uh, in terms of the the infotainment screens, UConnect is one of the best in the market. the The infotainment software, and it looks great on the on the big screen on the Jeep Cherokee. Now, there is the passenger display. I think is one of the ones you're speaking about. That's the touchscreen over in the, where you would think of like where the airbag is, which is interesting. I've never, you know, a lot of automakers, Mercedes-Benz, others are starting to try to do this now. Um, it feels like it's a little bit distracting for the driver, even if it is not out in their direct line of sight. But uh, you know what? I think it's pretty cool either way. Yeah. And <laughs> I think
0: in driving it, I wasn't distracted by it, but I, I, I think there is an ad, a big advantage to it. Uh, oftentimes when we're traveling, my wife is the navigator, and she'll be manipulating the navigation on the center screen. If it's right in front of her, it makes it even uh, that much better. Uh, this is the largest screen actually in the, in the front uh, passenger de- compartment. It's a, a little bit bigger than the other two touch screens out there. and. Uh, I think it's a a pretty cool idea. So, uh, you know, something I like. Of course, that goes beyond the 4xE. You can find that in in other vehicles, too. Basically, the 4xE is um, a higher version of uh, the basic Grand Cherokee, the uh, five-seat Grand Cherokee. As you can expect, it's more expensive, so it has more stuff, too, uh, to help justify that expense. It certainly fills the bill in terms of cargo. It has uh, 37.7 cubic feet of cargo behind the rear seats. If you fold the seat backs, you can get 70.8 cubic feet of cargo. There are other vehicles uh, that have more interior space than midsize vehicles, but it does a pretty good job of that and also tows a trailer. I mean, this is a a hybrid vehicle that will tow a 6,000-pound trailer. So that is very, very good. The technology is excellent. It has a ton of driver assists and just an amazing, amazing audio system. 19 speakers. (laughs) How do you stuff 19 speakers uh, into the uh, a vehicle like that? 10-inch subwoofer, 950-watt amplifier. I mean, you've got to be salivating over that, Chris. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I will tell you, I had, so I drove the Jeep Grand Cherokee L. The sound system that they're putting in the new Jeeps is, it's phenomenal. Uh, I won't claim to be an audiophile or a professional of any sort, but I do love loud music and it does sound incredible. They're, they're really great.
0: Absolutely. And uh, great powertrain. Uh, it has a two liter turbocharged four cylinder engine. Uh, then you get a liquid cooled motor generator that replaces the alternator and then another a high voltage electric motor in the transmission that does the work. So um, it's powered by a 400 volt, uh, 17 kilowatt hour battery, which isn't a very large battery. It offers something like 25 miles of all electric range, which really isn't the point with this thing. Although 25 miles of all electric range in the field is definitely the point. And uh, various four wheel drive systems. So Uh, This is a very, very capable vehicle. I had the chance to drive it off-road. We went, uh, forded a river, actually kind of went down the the creek bed uh, for a while in in water that was uh, two feet deep. Upgrades that you just find incredible. Uh, This is a really cool vehicle. And even though it starts at $60,000, I think it's going to find uh, a home in a lot of garages. What do you think, Chris?
1: Yeah, I think they're going to sell these things about as quickly as they can make them.
0: (laughs) A lot to like about this, and uh, I can't wait to have more time with this vehicle that has a 56 MPGE rating from the EPA, among other things. So it's fully capable and gets great fuel economy and uh, is full of tech. So uh, it sounds like a winner in my book. That's the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xE.
1: Totally agree.
0: And when we come back, we will be speaking with Dave Coleman. He is the Mazda Vehicle Dynamics Manager. Really interesting guy talking about why Mazdas feel like Mazdas. So stay with us for that. With Chris Teague, this is Jack Neired with you. And thanks so much for being with us right here on America on the Road. Welcome back, everybody, to America on the Road, Jack Neerad with you. And we have a terrific guest. And I really do mean that, a terrific guest. I love the presentation I've just heard. Dave Coleman is in charge of vehicle dynamics for Mazda. And I'm certain, Dave, you have specific ideas about why Mazdas feel so much better than other vehicles in terms of dynamics. Uh, something you work with every day. And we as car testers have experienced that, but you probably can tell us exactly why that is. Would you dive into that?
2: Yeah, so there's there's a philosophy at Mazda that we call jimbaitai, which is a Japanese phrase called, that means horse and rider as one. It's very meaningful to Japanese people and very difficult for us to explain to Americans, um, but it really comes from uh, when you're riding on a horse and when you're really well connected with that horse, it's, the, the phrase literally means horse and rider as one.
0: Yeah, if you're not connecting with that horse, you have a terrible ride. Yeah,
2: ex- exactly, yeah. exactly. And it actually comes from an ancient Japanese horse archery where the rider is standing on top of a a galloping horse and shooting at a target as they go by, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Um, and so that sort of we use that as the inspiration for the kind of precision interaction that we want between a driver and a car. Um, so instead of focusing on performance specs and maximum G and response time, we focus on the feedback loop between the car, the driver's mind, and the car's response, and how the car response uh, feeds back to the driver. If you think about you know, going into a corner, when you first turn, start turning the steering wheel, you're subconsciously trying to figure out what the car is going to do, how much it's going to turn when you turn the wheel. And how much f-
0: input do I put in? Yeah. What am I going to get out of that?
2: And you're feeling that feedback okay. through your hands in the steering, through your body as the car moves. And we really deeply study humans to figure out how the car should move. And you'll see, actually, when we do uh, r- ride and handling testing, we will actually, instead of instrumenting the car, we'll instrument the driver's neck. When you go over a bump, if your neck moves, that means the ride motion wasn't something that your body was prepared and expecting for. And mm-hmm. if we tune the suspension better so that what you see out the windshield matches what you feel and the, the, the motion of the vehicle is very simple when it hits that bump, you'll notice your, the subconscious part of your brain that's balancing your big heavy neck or big heavy head on top of your neck is able to handle it better. So it's a lot of really deep, esoteric stuff yeah. behind how we make the well, car like drive.
0: Well, like calf mu- muscle uh, movement, right, when right. you're accelerating. Talk about that. I th- I found that fascinating. Yeah,
2: so I was explaining how, how we make our car's throttle response feel right. And a lot of people think uh, of just flooring it and going. And, and, and we actually spend a lot of time on the more mundane inputs of just tipping into the throttle just to pass the car in front of you, everyday stuff that you're doing all the time. Um, and the way we figure out what is the ideal response for a human is by looking at hum- how humans move when there's no car involved, when you're just walking, uh, every time you take a step, you accelerate with your calf muscle and your calf muscle, uh, has a certain, uh, I- uh impulse style that accelerates your body in a certain way. And then the
0: accelerating mind <laughs> like slower and slower and slower. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
2: Um, and, and then the, the another part of your brain is responding to that acceleration by, again, balancing your melon on top of your neck.
0: Yeah, so um, you don't fall, you know, pitch forward and right. crash into the floor.
2: And so that exact same relationship occurs in the car. You use your calf muscle to push on the gas pedal, and then the car accelerates, and your neck has to balance. Uh, and so we look at what does your calf muscle do and what does your neck muscle do when you're walking, and we try to tune the car so that same relationship occurs uh, when you're driving,
0: is that typical, or is that kind of a Mazda-only kind of study? What's, what's your take on it? I that?
2: think we are deeper in the weeds on this kind of thing than yeah. just about anybody. I yeah. think a, a, other other cars uh, might come to the same result sometimes. Um, I doubt they're coming there in exactly the same way that we are. Yeah. Um, we've come to this result in the past through different ways as well, but we, because we've had this philosophy for a long time. Um, but what the human study that we're doing lately is all about is trying to make sure that we can get to that point Consistently with every car rather than relying right. on the feel of the individual person who's and tuning you it.
0: you want the input to be commensurate with the result of the input, right? So when you tip in, you don't want either too much or too little acceleration. You're tipping into the accelerator so you want more acceleration. Right. And then and you, you go wanted- from there, right? You don't want to Tip in and go, oh, that's too much. I've got to come off. And then you have the seesaw effect.
2: Right, right. And that's actually uh, at the core of, of uh, something that a lot of people don't understand when they look at our, our powertrain specs. Um, we get a lot of criticism for having a six-speed automatic in an era where everyone has eight, nine, ten gears. But looking at tip-in response, when you're cruising down the highway in six gear and you just roll into the throttle to move past the car in front of you, if you have a ten-speed transmission, there's not enough torque. To pass that car. So you're going to roll into the throttle and it's not going to do anything and you're going to roll into it more and the transmission's trying to pick a gear but while it's trying to pick a gear you're still inputting trying to trying to get something and yeah. by the time Go, it, go, 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 go. <laughs> by the time it gets to the gear that it needed for your first input you've put in too much gas and now you're overshooting and then you shoot past the car and then you back off and honestly that's how most cars behave these days and I think people come to just expect it to be a battle between the driver and the car to how to control it and by making engines that are really responsive and torquey and make good output at around 2,000 RPM and then making a transmission that cruises at around 2,000 RPM, we're already in the right gear at cruise and ready to just be direct and connected. Um,
0: yeah, this used to be an issue with turbocharged engines, right? I mean, you would have turbo lag, right. you'd tip in, you wouldn't get a, a you know a, enough acceleration, you wouldn't get any more necessarily until the, the turbo spooled up, then you have too much and it's of an on off switch these days turbos can be tuned so they have that instant torque available can't they tell us about that
2: R- right we really prioritize the low rpm area of our power band when when we were designing the this 2.5 turbo engine um if you can sort of see a hint of it in the peak numbers because you know when you we quote peak horsepower and peak torque that's how much output the engine makes at whatever rpm happens to be the best but if you look at you know we've got 310 foot pounds of torque on 87 octane gas right But the important part of that is not how much torque, but look at when it occurs. It's at 2,000 RPM. That means we've got the turbo spooling up right off idle and coming up to really strong torque right off the beginning. Um, And that just gives you flexibility and control and this real direct responsiveness.
0: And that's really what you want in terms of driving a passenger car, isn't it?
2: Right. It's It's not the ideal powertrain for a racetrack. Um, but usually you're not on a racetrack.
0: Talk about shifting torque back and forth between the axles. It's something people don't think about very much at all. You think about it a lot, Uh, tell us about it.
2: Yeah, and in in, in incredible detail too. Um, So yeah, we use our all-wheel drive systems. All of our SUVs are are full-time all-wheel drive. Um, And they are what you'd traditionally call call an on-demand all-wheel drive system. You don't have to switch anything on or off. Um, in the past, an on-demand all-wheel drive system was sort of a, a reactionary system where it would just wait for the front tires to slip. And then, oh, my God, I'll send some torque to the rear wheels. And those, I kind of left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths because they could feel that hesitation and, 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 and then response. Um, we've taken that same sort of hardware concept where we always drive the front wheels and we feed torque to the rear wheels when we need it but we've got really sophisticated algorithms to figure out when you need torque at those rear wheels before you need it and use that rear torque for a lot of different things so anytime you accelerate we know that weight is shifting off your front tires and onto the rear tires. So the grip is leaving the front and more grip is appearing at the back. So, so just, a little
0: harder to steer, right? So yeah, just you're, you're, looking you're, at yeah. your
2: acceleration, we know, okay, he hit the gas. I'm going to send torque to the back before anything slips, right? Um, if you go into a corner, the way the suspension is tuned, we shift more load off the front tire and onto the rear tire to expand the, the handling envelope. We also will shift torque to the rear wheel in a corner when you're accelerating out of the corner. But there's a subtle thing that also happens with these all-wheel drive systems, is when we couple the front and rear wheels together, they try to go the same speed. Um, and the tires have to go different speeds in a corner. Uh, so Because
0: it, they're following a different track.
2: Right. The rear tires go a little bit shorter path than the front tires, uh, naturally. Uh, so if we put too much re- connection between the front and rear wheels at the wrong time, the car won't, won't want to turn. So we have algorithms in there that, look at, that recognize that you're turning into a corner and will decouple those rear wheels at turn-in so the car will carve into the corner naturally. And then at mid-corner, it goes back and starts feeding rear torque again so you can power out of that corner really naturally without without overpowering the front tires. It's well before you're spinning tires and slipping consciously. Um, You start to overload the tire's grip capacity a little bit, and the car starts to to sort of lose its fidelity in the handling. And so by moving torque around and sort of maximizing the grip of each tire, we get the car to behave consistently through a whole corner.
0: Explain how this differs from torque vectoring. We hear about torque vectoring a lot, and it's really about right and left rear wheel getting Various amounts of torque, correct? Right. And this is not that. No, right?
2: no. So, torque vectoring systems will drive the outside tires faster than the inside tires because that's something they normally do in a corner anyway. And you can kind of steer the car like a tank that's with correct. torque vectoring. Yeah. Uh, we don't do that because, in in studying human balance and how, how humans perceive a corner and brace for a corner, that extra yaw motion from a tank steer in the middle of the corner is is hard for us to process. You can expand the performance envelope of a car by doing that, but it feels unnatural, um, and we're going for this natural feel, so we don't do that. Instead what we do is we use a, a technology that we invented called G-Vectoring Control, which uh, improves the turn-in response at the very beginning of the corner because th- that first input and the feedback you get from that first input determines how you're going to steer through the, the whole corner and we what we found is that the cars respond that first steering input better if you shift weight onto the front tires right. so if you look at professional drivers like rally drivers who are racing on gravel all the time they are always using weight transfer to make their cars turn, they always left foot brake and shift tire weight onto the front tires every time they turn to make those front tires bite we sort of automated that in a very subtle way where when you turn the wheel it reduces the engine torque just enough to shift a little couple of extra pounds onto the front tires and it makes the tires respond more consistently so that as you enter that corner, you know exactly what it's going to do because it does the same thing
0: every time. I kind of always do that. I guess I'm a rally driver. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Some
2: of us have been around the block a few
0: times. (laughs) Let's talk about driving modes and the uh, CX-50 that's being introduced today and that we're driving today. Uh, It has driving modes too, but in a very different way than the typical driving modes that we're seeing from other manufacturers. Tell us about that, would you?
2: The fundamental philosophy uh, behind our driving mode is 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 very unusual. I think most driving modes are there to change the way a car behaves, to turn it into a different thing in each different mode. Um, but we really have a, a, a pretty clear idea of how a car should drive, um, and we don't want there to be a really sluggish version and a really aggressive version of our car.
0: Well, and kind of, I, I think that kind of goes to how vehicles are developed, and then. What the input is from others who are driving them, right? So you put the executives into the car, right. and you want them to understand. You want Oh, them to this notice, mode right. feels
2: different than that mode. We paid how much for this switch? Let's <laughs> yeah, make sure it doesn't it does do something, anything, right? right? It's like right.
0: connected to nothing. Yeah, and there's so a lot, lot of kind of overdo some things. So almost you
2: know, every sport mode is over exaggerated and then almost every normal mode is too sluggish because oh, we don't have to worry about sporty driving anymore. Um, we go for a really direct, consistent driving feel all the time. And so what we use our driving modes for is to to give that same consistent feeling in different conditions where we need different tuning to achieve the same result. So ultimately our car should drive the same way on the highway, on a twisty mountain road, on gravel, uh, climbing over steep slippery obstacles, towing a trailer. All these different modes are tuned to give the same feeling, but because the conditions are so different, we have to do different things to the vehicle to make it do the same behavior in the end.
0: So if, for example, you're towing, there's yeah. different inputs there's there's more weight on the rear axle for example
2: oh, right? and and importantly less weight on the front axle so any if you tow a, you know a big camping trailer on a long trip you'll notice you kind of get fatigued just driving straight down the highway and it's because if you look at yourself a lot of times you don't even consciously notice you're doing but if you look at your steering inputs you're constantly making all these little seesaw inputs at the wheel and that ultimately is because two things one the trailer pushes on around on the back of the car a little yeah, bit the trailer it ca- steering.
1: Yeah, it catches bit. the yeah. wind
2: a lot yeah. and it pushes the back of the car around but also, the tires don't respond properly because all the weight pushing down on the, on the tongue lifts weight off the front tires, and then the t- tires don't respond. So we use that G-Vectoring control system that I explained. We turn up the effectiveness of that, so it really throws weight onto the front tires every time you make a little input. And uh, if you're driving along with one hand on a straight road in normal mode with a 3,500-pound trailer on the back of this thing, you'll, you're sawing at the wheel slightly, and we switch it into towing mode, and your handle just calm down. Because that one, imp- the first input you made in that series of seesaws worked, and the car went into yeah. the part of the lane you wanted, and now you don't have to make any yeah, more it's inputs. It's like it just your relax. sometimes
0: you oversteer, and then you have to correct and correct and correct and correct this right. way, that way, this right. way, that way this, way, this way. And
2: if you make the car respond intuitively, all of that seesawing goes away, and you just drive straight. And it's right. much more relaxing on a long
0: drive. Sum up for me. Um, The vehicle dynamics philosophy as we kind of end the interview here. And I'd love to speak to you for another 15 or 20 minutes. (laughs)
2: Ultimately, at the end of the day, we're trying to make the car feel completely natural so that the driver feels confident no matter where they're driving. And what we did with CX-50 is just try to expand the conditions where you can drive that car and still feel the same confidence that you feel in all of our cars.
0: Well, Dave Coleman, thanks so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back right here on America on the Road. Welcome back to America on the Road with Christine. This is Jackie Redd with you. And thanks so much for being with us. We really do appreciate it. It is listener question time. And I think we have a fascinating listener question. We have such smart listeners. And uh, Joseph in Fresno, California asked this question, Chris. This is what he says. I'm amazed by the quick run-up in gasoline prices. It seems like they have almost doubled where I live in just a month or two. Should I take the high prices into account when I buy a new vehicle, or is this a passing thing?
1: Well, I think that if history has shown us anything, it's that gasoline prices go up and go down. So uh, if financially gasoline prices cut into your life in any way, I think you should take them into consideration when you're buying a car, regardless of where the prices are. And I think that I don't have a crystal ball, so we'll have to reassess this in 10 years, but I don't see a future where gasoline becomes cheaper. If anything, I think here will become much more expensive as regulation and time progress. But
0: Yeah, I would always take gasoline prices and every every cost associated with the vehicle into account. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily, though, believe that we're going to have $7 a gallon gas like we have in California right now going forward. And I think if I were an oil producer, I wouldn't necessarily, or if I could invest in oil producers or not, This is not the time I would necessarily invest in fossil fuels, and I think that has some effect on uh, fuel prices going forward, because if there isn't more investment in fossil fuels, if there isn't more fossil fuel infrastructure uh, being put in place and more drilling and all of that, more refining, it's naturally going to drive up the price of gasoline.
1: Yes, that is absolutely true.
0: Well, that's it for our show this week, and uh, Chris, always great to talk to you about cars.
1: Always great to talk to you, Jack, and always great to talk to everyone listening. If you like what you heard, I will ask you to go to sportsmapradio.com. Check us out on the Saturday morning schedule. There you can find our podcast and the recording of this radio show, so you can take us with you wherever you go.
0: Our thanks to the SportsMap Radio Network stations for carrying America on the Road. And most of all, thanks to you for listening to America on the Road. We appreciate it. Thanks for joining us each week. We hope you will join us again next week right here for another edition of America on the Road. America on the Road is brought to you by Mercury Insurance and drivingtoday.com. If you're looking to save some money, you should switch to Mercury for your auto and home insurance. California save an average of $670 with Mercury, so imagine how much you could save. Get a quote today at mercuryinsurance.com. If you're looking to buy a new car, a used car, just care about cars, care about what's going on with EVs, check out drivingtoday.com, the official automotive website of America on the Road.